we happen to just be looking back on, on our little journey in Calvary Chapel uh, over the last few years. I've been a part of this little fellowship for about six years now, well, almost exactly six years. The, the first day we came was a Christmas party at um, Brian and Tara's house, who are now in Sydney, um, serving the Lord down there. But um, we went along and, on, you know, in the spur of the moment, decided to go and sing carols. Um, and I was the only one who knew all the words, so I was roped into, <laughs> we didn't have words written down, so I was roped into leading the carols on my very first, um, <laughs> just random people's houses, you know, trying to give us money and all sorts of things. Um, that was six years ago, and, and since that time, I, I mean, a lot of you will remember the Scout Hall, um, which was a, an interesting experience, really. It was uh, obviously before we were here, and um, it was... Uh, I think it was a refining experience more than anything else. You know, we had this, this dirty scout hall where Terry would get there with his shirt off in the morning before each Sunday and sweep up the, <laughs> sweep up the dust that inevitably would accumulate, not necessarily from dust on the ground, but the floor itself actually produced dust. This, and, uh, and then someone had a really bright idea of trying to paint the thing blue um, to kind of settle the dust down, and it didn't work. So and then it was blue dust. And uh, our kids would just come home, you know, from head to toe, just covered in, in blue dust. Um, compared to here, you know, we have air conditioning. Jesse just came and flicked on the switch because we were feeling a little bit warm. And uh, it w back in the scout hall, we was, it was like a, it, being in a tent. And we had this patio heater. It was probably still in there, actually, this patio heater, which would just crank on the gas. You know, it's supposed to be for the outside, which it pretty much was. Um, and so you'd, you'd have these little huddles of people underneath the patio heaters listening to the sermon in winter. And in summer, nothing you could do um, other than get an ice cream afterwards. That and trudging through the mud between the kids' church and the hall. Um, it just, it's fun just to think about what God has provided for us, I think, here. You know, how good he's been to us. Um, and it's obviously not just about the physical things, you know. One of the things we've never wanted to focus on in, in our journey as a church, as a fellowship of believers, as a, um, is numerical growth, you know. Yes, we have numerically grown. I think we had probably an average attendance of about 25 in, in the scout hall at one point in time, and we've now got over 25 on our worship roster, you know. Um, but that's not ever what we've aimed for. What we've wanted to aim for is spiritual growth. Um, and, and Terry will agree with this wholeheartedly. We, we never wanted to try and promote ourselves as being an entertainment or a, um, a good place to come and have a good time. We want to really advertise ourselves as a place where we come and get fed spiritually, um, get deeper into the word, get uh, closer in our relationship with Jesus, uh, and we encourage each other along the way. Uh, an inevitable consequence of that will be that hopefully like-minded Christians will will be added to our number as they move into the area or whatever. We're never interested in church poaching. That's not something we want to do. Um, but we, if we're really doing our job, our numbers should be swelling not with people coming from different churches. It should be swelling with people who have never been to a church before. Or if they have, it was when they were a kid a long time ago. Or they've been backslidden for 10 years and they've heard the gospel fresh from one of us uh, and we've invited them along because they've responded. You know, that's how our numbers should be growing. Um, and so that's, that's my prayer. So thinking about all this, and I came across Romans chapter 12 this week, and um, 
I think it really addresses a couple of key questions. And, and number one is, what does it mean to live a holy life? Um, and related to that is in the context of the church, what, what does the church look like when we're doing that? What do we look like to people on the outside? Um, and I guess also in there as well is a, a little part about determining the will of God, uh, which is a question I think, um, you know, what should we be doing with ourselves? What is my unique calling? Um, uh, so with that in mind, let's read from Romans chapter 12. I'm going to do something a bit different today. Would you mind standing with me while we read? I kind of like this tradition. I've never done it before. I've, I've had it done, and I've always enjoyed it. A bit of reverence. Romans chapter 12. We're going to read from verses 1 uh, through to verse 13. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honour, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. Um, good to bear Terry and Lindy and the kids in mind. We saw a little Facebook message. They'd arrived in the States, but it wasn't necessarily simple. Um, <laughs> they were on a red-eye flight, which is always a bad idea with lots of children. And um, I think uh, somewhere along the way, Kobe got his finger stuck in an, el in an escalator and got rubber burn, which only Kobe would do. Um, <laughs> And so he's been dealing with pain for the first half of the, the plane flight out to the States, um, keeping everybody up in the red-eye flight. And I've been that parent, and it's not a fun place to be. <laughs> uh, and then they got to, uh, I think it was Terry's brother, Terry's brother's place in LA, and uh, Kai tried to jump on an exercise ball. And I say try, because he failed and landed on his head and was knocked unconscious for a good couple of minutes doesn't remember the flight, doesn't remember any, anything, or didn't for a good hour or two, so uh, I think he's coming to now. So I imagine probably Satan doesn't really want them to be enjoying their holiday. He doesn't want them to be refreshed uh, and to come back and be ready to teach us. So um, just keep him in your prayers because, uh, you know, those boys, I'll tell you what, <laughs> they, uh, they're full of energy. I love them dearly, and I, I just 
I just, you know, my prayer is that they just are so refreshed and ready to come back and to keep serving in the way that they do diligently. Um, just a bit of a background on Romans very quickly because we don't want to take forever on it, but obviously the author is Paul. Um, the recipient is, as the name suggests, the church at Rome. The letter was given to them via Phoebe, um, and it was written in about AD 56, which is when um, Paul was on his third missionary journey. Uh, interestingly, he was in Corinth when he was writing this letter, which is important later on, as we'll see. But basically, you could divide the book of Romans up into um, five different sections. There's Romans chapter 1 to halfway through chapter 3 is sin. Um, from halfway through 3 to the end of chapter 5 is salvation. From Romans chapter 6 to the end of chapter 8 is sanctification. From Romans 9 to the end of chapter 11 is sovereignty. Um, and all of that together could be, could be lumped in together as, as one section, and that is doctrine. Uh, it's really the constitution of the church. Um, and then from there... Uh, as we see uh, from, verse, from chapters 12 and onwards, we see the application of that doctrine. And that's just where we come into Romans, into chapter 12. We've seen everything that's, that's gone on, the reason for everything that we do, uh, and now we find out how we're to go about doing it. So in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, Paul is literally saying here, I am beside you calling. I am beside you calling. So I, I'm, I am beseeching you, really. Um, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I love what John Piper says about this. He says, we respond to God's mercy and then we worship and then we show other people mercy. We've got to get this order right. If we're trying to show other people mercy without responding to God's mercy in worship, we're going to fail. Um, so let's go back and just have a bit of a review of the story of redemption we know that from early on Romans and from the whole of the Old Testament um, that the temple service really revolved around sacrifices. Um, and there were all types of sacrifices. There was burnt sacrifices, grain, peace, sin, guilt. Um, but the most important of these, the most important kind of idea in all of this was, uh, was that there was a sacrifice that was an atonement for sin. Um, it, it took the judgment from the person and placed it onto the animal. And we know from earlier on in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, and from Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death. Um, and so we have in these Old Testament these sacrifices, this, this propitiation, this atonement picture. Hebrews 10, 4, though, says, it, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of man. So it never was possible for the blood of sins and goats to take away man. And really what we see in the Old Testament is this foreshadowing of what Jesus would do on the cross. Um, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the, our knowledge of sin really it condemns us. Um, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, being witness, witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
And God demonstrates his love for us in this Romans 5.8, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And what we see here is Jesus is, is choosing obedience. He said, here I am in Hebrews. Uh, it records what Jesus had said previously. It says, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus' purpose on earth was to do the will of the Father. I glorified thee on earth, John 17, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. And all these things he does to the glory of God. Recall the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if there's any other way that, I, that, I, that you can do this, that you can achieve this sacrifice, then take this cup from me. He's sweating blood um, with, I guess, the immensity of the knowledge that he is going to be, he's going to bear the sins and the wrath and the judgment of God in his body on the tree. And he's still obedient. Not my will, but yours be done, he says. So we see Jesus in complete obedience to the Father. And, and not just then, but what about when, when Lazarus died? And it, this is someone who Jesus loved, the scriptures tell us. And Jesus wept when he died. And he places obedience to God even above humanity. How often we get this the wrong way around. We try to please everybody instead of being obedient to the Father. But the paradoxical thing is, is as we are obedient to the Father, that's what works out best for humanity anyway, isn't it? Eventually Jesus is obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross, and he's still completely selfless. Do you remember he's there on the cross and he's asking, he's asking John, just look after Mary. He's dying on the cross. He says, John, just look after Mary. Um, I love that verse that where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're called to imitate Christ. And recall at the end of John's Gospel where Jesus is in his resurrected body and he's chilling out with the disciples. I love that picture of Jesus coming back, you know, holes and all this going on and he's just hanging with the disciples. Just picture yourself there for a second. What a trip out, hey? This guy who you saw crucified is now hanging out with you and teaching you. Do you remember he, he says, peace be unto you? Uh, because they're terrified when he walks in. They're like, it's a ghost. Peace, peace. And then again he says, peace be unto you, a second time. He's already said peace. Why does he say peace a second time? I think it's because it's what he's about to tell them. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Paul said, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Does it mean that we can somehow earn God's favour? No. It's because we have God's favour that we see this outlay in chapter 12, this outlay of what we are to do. We already have God's favour. We can't do anything to earn God's favour. But we've been redeemed, we've been bought with a price, we've been sacrificed for and our response really is outlaid in chapter 12. So what is a living sacrifice? And I guess we're drawing the comparison with Jesus as, as a sacrifice who dealt with death. And we remember David saying, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Remember that when he was going to buy the threshing floor um, for the, the side of the temple, the future temple. He said, I won't sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Um, 
But then he later on says in the Psalms, he says, the, the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Love that song from Sons of Korah. Hey? Um, that's how I remember my Psalms. <laughs> Too hard. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Invariably, we will sacrifice for the things we value. For example, if I want to play sport, I'm going to sacrifice my time. If I want to get fit, I'm going to sacrifice my sleep in the morning. Uh, looking at Kendall, because she's been up at, I think last week she was up at 5.30, in the grass, it was raining, face in the grass, doing push-ups and sit-ups and... I mean, that's a sacrifice. Um, and then we see that also, you know, if we, if, we, if we love food, we'll sacrifice for it. We'll sacrifice our looks <laughs> or our fitness. Um, if you, some people really love their career and they'll sacrifice their children for their career. Um, now, this verse really calls us not to sacrifice an area of our life, but to sacrifice our entire self. And there's a word I'd really like to draw attention to, and that's the word holy. Um, the other word is acceptable, which would probably be better translated as well-pleasing. We already accept it in God's sight. Um, but holiness, the same Greek word, it's this Greek word, hagio, um, it's used to translate, the, in the Old Testament, the, the word for holy is, is kadash in the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was written, and it was there in the time of Christ. So it's really useful for us to have the Septuagint because it helps us to understand the way that the, um, that the Greek world at that time understood the Old Testament scriptures. And so it gives us these parallel words. Um, and so the same word is kadash. Now, in, in the Old Testament, kadash is used to, uh, to describe the priests and what they do and pots and pans of all things so how are we supposed to be holy like a pot or a pan is my question and really holiness means being set apart for God's use that's what it means set apart for God's use um, I think the danger is being like the young fellow who had a girl that he was interested in and, and wrote her a letter and said I would climb the highest mountain for you. I would swim the widest ocean for you. I would fight the fiercest monster for you to be by your side. And I'll see you Thursday if it's not raining. <laughs> How easy it is to offer lip service to being wholly committed to God. I have been so convicted this week as I'm studying so many areas of my life that I haven't yet handed over or that I haven't have taken back. I love this quote from John MacArthur. The cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is the one who is willing to serve in the hard place, the uncomfortable place, the lonely place, the demanding place, the place where he is not appreciated and may even be persecuted. Knowing that time is short and eternity is long, he's willing to spend and be spent. He's willing to work for excellence without becoming proud, to withstand criticism without becoming bitter, to be misjudged without becoming defensive. Oh, it's tough. And to withstand suffering 
without succumbing to self-pity. So we see in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, and I think a better word there is discern, the ESV says discern, and I think if you if you really take it in context, we need to really use the word discern there. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The world that it speaks of here is really the system that is designed to make people happy without God. And in the times of Rome, there was a system, there was a whole bunch of different things. There was other foreign gods. And um, Do you see the parallel today? You know, is there a system in this world which is designed to make people happy without God? You could think of a hundred things. Sport, TV. Uh, not that these are bad things inherently in themselves, but, but they distract us from the, the path that we're on if we're not in the Lord. The question is, do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Do I want to know what the will of God is for my life? And a lot of Christians struggle with this question. And if you don't struggle with this question, you probably should. I can't, I can't, I can, I probably can tell you what the will of God is for your life. And uh, I'm not going to say anything radical. It's to follow Jesus. Yeah. But you probably want something more specific, uh, which I'm not going to give to you. <laughs> I'll give you some ideas. We're about to get into this little section now on spiritual gifts. Um, I don't think it's a mistake that it's, it's very nicely couched between these two, two sections. If you look before the spiritual gifts and after the spiritual gifts, um, there's number one, a call to humility just before, right? And just after, what does he talk about? Can you see it? Much like Corinthians, love. He calls people to love. Um, how easy it is to become puffed up and proud with the spiritual gifts that God has liberally given. Verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have, been, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I think the word members, and actually most of the translations still use the word members, is a little bit clunky. What it's referring to here is not members of a group. It was never used in that. The word members has never been used in Greek in that context as, 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 context as members of a group. It's talking about parts of a body. Okay? It's not members of a group. It's parts of a body. Um, and I don't remember ever using the word member in conversation in that, con in that, in that way. You just imagine kind of play school. And the kids, the kids come, <laughs> the kids come along, and we're like, "Okay, kids, we're going to learn about the members of our body today, like heads and shoulders, knees and toes." No, it's talking about the parts of our body. So substitute it in there, um, as we have many parts in one body: our arms, our legs, or organs, you could say, I guess. Um, but all the all the parts do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually parts of one another moving on I don't see anywhere in scripture where there is written an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts as if 
God were limited to what he could possibly give us in our giftings. Um, instead, we see these lists that are kind of lists of examples um, of what a spiritual gift might look like. Um, having then, verse 6, gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us, use, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The word gifts is the Greek word charismata. Interestingly, the word grace is karin. So the charismata, the word gifts, is, a, is actually a word made up by Paul. And all it is is a is basically is two little words put together, grace and the effect of. A gift is simply the effect of grace. That's all it is. It's the effect of grace. So having then the effects of grace according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. They are given purely by grace. The very word, is that's what it means. How can we be proud of the gifts that we have or puffed up or think more highly of ourselves when they're purely given by grace, not by merit, as if we could deserve anything that God gives us? Worsby adds, Spiritual gifts are tools to build with, not toys to play with or weapons to fight with. In the church at Corinth, and remember Paul is in Corinth at the time writing these things, and it was only uh, less than a year later that he wrote the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Um, the believers were tearing down the ministry because they were abusing spiritual gifts. They were using the gifts as ends in themselves and not as a means toward the end of building up the church. They so emphasized their spiritual gifts that they lost their spiritual graces. Let me read that again. They so emphasized their spiritual gifts that they lost their spiritual graces. They had the gifts of the Spirit but we're lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Literally, have this family love for each other with brotherly love. And I love the ESV rendering of the next verse. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. Imagine if we did that. Imagine what we'd look like. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And this is what the church should look like. Kindly affectionate, having family love. The kind that comes naturally for your parents and for your siblings, for your children. Um, and then there's brotherly love as well. Can you imagine the impact of a group doing this, that a group doing this would have on the people around them? What would it be like for new people coming in and seeing this family love? But it's only part of the story. Let's tie it back into what came immediately before. We have this big list of gifts and we're called to use the gifts that God has given to us to serve our brothers and to reach out to those who don't know Jesus. 
William Carey, uh, a famous missionary to Asia, um, and I think he was talking at this stage about India. He, he used to return from England between his missionary trips, and he was known to say, he would take a piece of rope and he was known to say, I will descend into the deepest pit on earth if you will hold the other end. And I think we need to be on one end of the rope. We either need to be holding the rope or down in the pit. Need to either be a goer or a sender. Serving Jesus is not about geography. It's not about where you go, per se. Some are called to move around and to do new things. I mean, look at one of my heroes, William MacDonald, who never was a pastor of a big church, has had an amazing impact in terms of his, um, his writing, his commentary on the Bible, which is, is big and fun. Um, but such a humble guy, and I have, the, I have the absolute joy of listening to some of his audio sermons that are really, really crackly. He died only, uh, I think, less than 10 years ago uh, at the age of 90-something and was still preaching from the pulpit. Um, and such a humble guy, you know. But he uh, had a massive impact, but never pastored a big church. He was always moving around, just starting something new and handing it on to local people to, to, to build up... Um, the people in the area. But there's people who I think equally are called to stay in the one location for life. And I think sometimes that's harder. But we've got to be willing to do whatever God wants of us. If, he's will, he's, if, if he wants us to stay here for life, then we've got to be willing. If he wants us to go to wherever, are we willing? I guess my question is if... if if Andrew comes along and we're Peter, are we going to respond to the call? You know, remember Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. Or what if Barnabas is there and, and Paul comes along? What if we're Barnabas and Paul wants to take us on a missionary trip? Are we willing to do what God wants us to do? I guess we need to be asking here, what are my resources? What am I good at? What do I get excited about? What are my connections, my networks? What are my gifts? What are my interests? Where am I currently placed and how can I bring the gospel to that location? And then just let us be praying for God to use us as he wants to use us. But we know that these things happen not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. I think it's interesting... Um, when we look at the spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy, which is really, in, I mean, in the Bible, it's foretelling or forthtelling. It's either telling something before it happened or telling something to someone in front of their face about God. Um, we can still do that today. Still tell people about the truth that we find in Scripture. Prophecy must always match with Scripture. In our ministering, that word ministering, um, a little bit of an older word, but really it means serving. It's just the word service. All these gifts, exhortation is beside calling. It's coming alongside someone. Exhortation. There's really nothing fancy in any of this. It's just being faithful to what God is calling us to do day by day.
Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honour, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints and given to hospitality. So the three questions we had, number one, what does it mean to live a holy life? It means being set apart for God. What does it look like when the church is doing this? What will be the result of it? The result will be that we are living in love with one another, that we're expressing our spiritual gifts, that we're seeking God for the direction he wants to lead us in, that we're supporting people to go and that we're willing to go ourselves. Think about all the things that are going on in our church at the moment with um, Stian and Trine ready to go to Jordan. What are we going to do for him? Are we going to hold the rope? It's a tough place to go, you know? And I know they've copped it. I don't think they mind me saying they've copped a bit of flack from some of their parents at their public school. Like, is that safe for your children? You know, they don't have the same mindset, but we do. We know that it's a valuable thing. We can support them in prayer. We can support them if God leads you in finances. We can support them um, in just offering words of encouragement, writing an email, whatever it is. But what about what else is going on in the church? We have a strong connection with Christian surface, and we have for, since we started, really. Um, I love what these guys do. And I think not only that, we've got the Campus Crusade guys, um, who are doing a wonderful ministry in the university here. And what can we do to support them in the ministry that they're doing? How can we hold the rope for them? They're in there at the coalface, uh, but they need our support. They need our prayer. Uh, they need us to, to be sending them continually in affection, in brotherly affection. Um, and we all have our personal ministries as well. Our ministry, my ministry at work, is really to treat my patients as best I can and when I can share the gospel, which happens sometimes. Uh, and it's a privilege when it does. So I'd appreciate your prayers in that. Uh, what is it that you need help with? Why don't you let people know what you're up to, what God's doing through you in whatever workplace or school place or whatever it is that you're doing? Finally, verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. That's convicting for me. Hey? Steadfastly in prayer, oh man. There's times when, you know, my prayer life is pretty good. <laughs> There's times when it's really not, you know. Oh God, convict us to have a better prayer life. Distributing to the needs of the saints, and I love this bit, given to hospitality. Let's pray. 